Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to J.P. Morgan Chase's second quarter 2021 earnings call. This call is being recorded. Your line will be muted for the duration of the call. We will now go live to the presentation. Please stand by. At this time, I would like to turn the call over to J.P. Morgan Chase's chairman and CEO, Jamie Dimon, and Chief Financial Officer, Jeremy Barnum. Mr. Barnum, please go ahead. Thanks, operator. Good morning, everyone. Uh, before we get going, I'd just like to say how honored I am to be on my first earnings call, following in the footsteps of Marianne and Jen, both of whom taught me so much during my time working for them, and whose shoes will be very difficult to fill, but I'm going to try. So with that, this presentation is available on our website, and please refer to the disclaimer in the back. Starting on page one. The firm reported net income of $11.9 billion, EPS of $3.78 on revenue of $31.4 billion, and delivered a return on tangible common equity of 23%. These results include $3 billion of credit reserve releases, which I'll cover in more detail shortly. Touching on a few highlights. Combined debit and credit spend was up 45% year-on-year, and more importantly, up 22% versus the more normal pre-COVID second quarter of 2019. It was an all-time record for IDPs, up 25% year-on-year, driven by advisory and debt underwriting. We saw particularly strong growth in AWM, with record long-term flows as well as record revenue. And finally, Credit continues to be quite healthy, as evidenced by our exceptionally low net charge-offs across the board. Regarding our balance sheet, the trends from recent quarters have largely continued. Deposits are up 23% year-on-year and 4% sequentially, and loan growth remains low, flat year-on-year and up 1% quarter-on-quarter. Although we have bright spots in certain pockets and the consumer spend trends are encouraging. So now turning to page two for more detail. As I go through this page, I'm going to provide you some context about the prior year quarter because the year-on-year comparisons are a bit noisy. So with respect to revenue, the second quarter of 2020 was an all-time record for markets with revenue of over $9.7 billion, and we recorded approximately $700 million of gains in our bridge book. With that in mind, revenue of $31.4 billion was down $2.4 billion, or 7% year-on-year. Non-interest revenue was down $1.3 billion, or 7%, due to the prior year items I just mentioned, partially offset by strong fee generation and investment banking in AWM, as well as from card-related fees on higher spend. And net interest income was down $1.1 billion, or 8%, driven by lower markets on AI and lower balances in card. Expenses of $17.7 billion were up 4% year-on-year, largely on continued investments. And then on credit costs, going back to last year again, you will recall in last year's second quarter, we built $8.9 billion in credit reserves during the height of the pandemic, whereas this year we released $3 billion. So in this quarter, credit costs were a net benefit of $2.3 billion. And setting aside the reserve release, it's also worth noting that net charge-offs of just over $700 million 
or half of last year's second quarter number and continue to trend near historical lows. On the next page, let's go over the reserves. We released $3 billion this quarter as we grow increasingly confident about the economy in light of continued improvement in COVID, especially in the U.S. In consumer, we released $2.6 billion, including $1.8 billion in card and $600 million in home lending. And in wholesale, we released nearly $450 million. So this leaves us with reserves of $22.6 billion, which, as a result of elevated remaining uncertainty about COVID and the shape of the economic recovery, are higher than would otherwise be implied by our central economic forecast. Now moving to balancing in capital on page four. We ended the quarter with a CT1 ratio of 13%, down slightly versus the prior quarter, as net growth in retained earnings was more than offset by higher RWA across both retail and wholesale lending. This quarter also reflects the expiration of the temporary SLR exclusions, and as we anticipated, leverage is now our binding constraint. As you know, we finished CCAR a couple of weeks ago, and our SCB will be 3.2%, which reflects the board's intention to increase the dividend to $1 per share in the third quarter. Okay, now let's go to our businesses, starting with consumer and community banking on page five. CCB reported net income of $5.6 billion, including reserve releases of $2.6 billion on revenue of $12.8 billion, up 3% year-on-year. Of particular note this quarter is the acceleration of card spend. And so while card outstanding remained lower than pre-pandemic levels, this quarter's trends make us optimistic. Total debit and credit spend was up 45% year-on-year, and more importantly, up 22% versus the second quarter of 19. And within that, compared to 2019, June total spend was up 24%, indicating some healthy acceleration throughout the quarter. And travel and entertainment has really turned a corner, with spend flat versus the second quarter of 19 accelerating from down 11% in April to actually up 13% in June. The rest of the CCB story remains consistent with prior quarters. Consumer and small business cash balances remain elevated, resulting in depressed loan growth. Overall loans were down 3% year-on-year from continued elevated prepayments and mortgage and on lower card outstandings, partially offset by strong growth in auto and the impact of PPP. Home lending and auto continued to have strong originations with home lending up 64% to $40 billion, the highest quarterly figure since the third quarter of 2013, and auto up 61% to a record $12.4 billion. Deposits were up 25% year-on-year, or approximately $200 billion, and client investment assets were up 36%, driven by market appreciation and positive net flows across our advisor and digital channels. And our omni-channel strategy continues to deliver. We are more than halfway through our initial market expansion commitment, as we have opened more than 200 new branches out of our goal of 400, which have exceeded our expectations by generating $7 billion in deposits and investments, 
and we are planning to be in all 48 contiguous states by the end of the summer. Digital trends continue to be strong as retail mobility recovers at a faster pace than branch transactions, which are still down more than 20% versus 2019. Active mobile users grew 10% year-on-year to over 42 million, and total digital transactions per engaged customer were up 12%. Expenses of $7.1 billion were up 4% year-on-year, driven by continued investments in higher volume and revenue-related expenses. Looking forward, the obvious question is the outlook for loan growth, especially in card. And we are quite optimistic that the current spend trends will convert into resumption of loan growth through the end of this year and into next. And while we wait, the exceptionally low level of net charge-offs provides a substantial offset to the NII headwind. Next, the Corporate and Investment Bank on page 6. CIB reported net income of $5 billion and an ROE of 23% on revenue of $13.2 billion. IDPs of $3.6 billion were up 25% year-on-year and up 20% quarter-on-quarter, an all-time record driven by advisory and debt underwriting, leading to a year-to-date global IB wallet share of 9.4% and a number one ranking. In advisory, we were up 52% year-on-year, benefiting from the surge in announcement activity that has continued into the second quarter. Debt underwriting fees were up 26%, driven by an active acquisition finance market offset by lower investment-grade issuance. And in equity underwriting, fees were up 9%, primarily driven by a strong performance in IPOs. The resulting investment banking revenue of $3.4 billion was roughly flat year-on-year due to the headwind of the prior year's markup in the bridge book. Looking ahead to the third quarter, the pipeline remains very strong. We expect M&A activity and the IPO markets to remain active, and while IVCs are likely to be down sequentially, we still expect them to be up year-on-year. Moving to markets, Total revenue was $6.8 billion, down 30%, compared to an all-time record quarter last year. While normalization has been more prevalent in macro, overall, we ran above 2019 levels throughout the quarter on the back of strong client activity, outperforming our own expectations from earlier in the year. Fixed income was down 44% compared to last year's exceptional results, but up 11% compared to the second quarter of 19. Equity markets was up 13%, driven by record balances in prime, as well as strong performance in cash and equity derivatives, where we matched last year's great results. Looking forward, while we expect normalization to continue across both investment banking and markets, and most notably in fixed income, the timing and the extent of the normalization is obviously hard to predict. Wholesale payments revenue was $1.5 billion, up 5%, driven by higher deposits and fees, largely offset by deposit margin compression. And security services revenue was $1.1 billion, down 1%, as deposit margin compression was predominantly offset by growth in deposits and fees. Expenses of $6.5 billion were down 4% year-on-year, driven by lower performance-related compensation, partially offset by higher volume-related expense. Moving to commercial banking on page 7. 
Commercial banking reported net income of $1.4 billion and an ROE of 23%. Revenue of $2.5 billion was up 3% year-on-year, with higher investment banking, lending, and wholesale payments revenue largely offset by lower deposit revenue and the absence of a prior year equity investment gain. Record gross investment banking revenue of $1.2 billion was up 37% on increased M&A and acquisition-related financing activity compared to prior year lows. Expenses of $981 million were up 10% year-on-year, driven by higher volume and revenue-related expenses and investments. Deposits of $290 billion were up 22% year-on-year as client balances remain elevated. Loans of $2.5 billion were down 12% year-on-year, driven by lower revolver utilization compared to the prior year quarter and down 1% sequentially. CNI loans were down 1% quarter on quarter with lower utilization partially offset by new loan activity in middle market. And CRE loans were down 1%, but we saw pockets of growth in affordable housing activity. Finally, credit costs were a net benefit of $377 million driven by reserve releases with net charge-offs of only one basis point. And to complete our lines of business, onto asset and wealth management on page eight. Asset and wealth management reported net income of $1.2 billion with pre-tax margin of 37% and an ROE of 32%. Record revenue of $4.1 billion was up 20% year on year as higher management fees and growth in deposit and loan balances were partially offset by deposit margin compression. Expenses of $2.6 billion were up 11% year-on-year, driven by higher performance-related compensation and distribution expenses. For the quarter, net long-term inflows of $49 billion continued to be positive across all channels, with notable strength in equities, fixed income, and alternatives. AUM was $3 trillion, and for the first time, overall client assets were over $4 trillion, up 21% and 25% year-on-year, respectively, driven by higher market levels and strong net inflows. And finally, loans were up 21% year-on-year, with continued strength in securities-based lending, custom lending, and mortgages, while deposits were up 37%. Turning to corporate on page nine. Corporate reported a net loss of $1.2 billion. Revenue was a loss of $1.2 billion, down $415 million year on year. NII was down $274 million, primarily on limited deployment opportunities as deposit growth continued. And we realized $155 million of net investment securities losses in the quarter. Expenses of $515 million were up $368 million year-on-year. So with that, on page 10, the outlook. Our 2021 NII outlook of around $52.5 billion remains in line with the updated guidance we provided last month. But as you'll note, we've also lowered our outlook for the card net charge-off rate to less than 250 basis points, which as I mentioned in CCB, provides a meaningful offset to the NII headwind. And it's worth mentioning that the current environment makes forecasting NII, even in the near term, unusually challenging. 
So while $52.5 billion remains our current central case, you should expect some elevated uncertainty around that number, not only because of the ongoing impact of stimulus on consumer balance sheets, but also due to volatility coming from markets, among other things. And as a reminder, most of any fluctuation in markets on AI, whether up or down, is likely to be offset in NIR. On expenses, we've increased our guidance to approximately $71 billion, driven by higher volume and revenue-related expenses. So, to wrap up, we are encouraged by the continued progress against the virus and the economic recovery that is underway, especially in the United States. Although, we want to acknowledge the challenges that much of the rest of the world is facing, and we're hopeful that a global recovery will follow closely behind. Our performance this quarter, once again, showcases the power of our diversified business model as headwinds in NII from consumer delevering are offset by strong fee generation across AWM and CIB and exceptionally low net charge-offs across the board. While we're proud of the performance of the company and of our people through the crisis, the competition in every business from banks, fintechs, and others is as intense as ever. So, as we look forward to an increasingly normal environment, we are enthusiastically focused on competing for every piece of share in every market, product, and business where we operate and making the necessary investments to win. With that, operator, please open the line for Q&A. And our first question is coming from the line of Glenn Shore from Evercore ISI. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Hi, Glenn. Hi there. Hi, Jeremy. Well, welcome. Welcome uh, to the party. Uh, question Thank on you very AI, much. if I could. I po apologize if it's a little multifaceted. But so, you know, even though we're getting some inflationary data and you're, 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 you're positively inclined on the economy as of my rates sell, not sure you want to opine on why, but let's talk about um, you kept the NII guide, I'm assuming because deposit growth is strong. Um, curious your thoughts on consumer payment rates staying at this elevated level, deposit growth staying at this elevated level, and then most importantly, if you're managing the balance sheet any differently, meaning you, you had been slow playing putting money to work, rates are even lower now. Are you still slow playing putting money to work? Uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. All right, so let's um, let's sort of take that in parts. So, in terms of our RNII guidance, so yeah, so we're reiterating uh, 52 and a half uh, for the full year. So, just to take your deployment point first, uh, obviously rates are a little bit lower. Uh, long end rates are a bit lower. The curve has flattened a little bit since uh, since we provided that guidance, but. When we provided that guidance, we were uh, reasonably conservative in our deployment assumptions through the rest of the year. So as a result of that, it's, it's not really a meaningful factor, sort of at the level of precision that we're talking about here. Um, in terms of the consumer side, as you say, obviously it's really card is really going to be the big driver. So you heard us talking about payment rates, and you see the sequential uh, growth in card loans. So we do believe that the, the sort of acceleration and the pickup and spend is going to translate 
um, to, to, you know, as I say, resumption of loan growth in card. But we do think that pay rates are going to remain quite elevated uh, at a minimum through the end of this year. So as a result, we don't really see revolving interest-bearing balances increasing meaningfully this year. Um, and so as a result, that remains, you know, a headwind for the overall NII for this year, which is incorporated in the outlook. Okay, and then in terms of managing balance sheet any differently in terms of putting money to work, is, is it still conservative on that front? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, you've heard us talk about this before, right? So our central case uh, from an economic perspective is for a very robust recovery, and that's, you know, pretty much a consensus view between us, our research team, the Fed, et cetera. Um, and that view is associated with higher inflation, uh, along the lines of the Fed's own targets for higher inflation. All those things together, um, you know, uh, it's, it's an outlook that's associated with, with higher rates, all else equal. And so in light of all that, we do remain happy uh, to stay patient here. Um, and, you know, if you look at our EIR disclosure, which you obviously won't see until you get the queue, uh, but some of you guys have written about this recently, our, our overall sensitivities here are kind of, in line with the industry. So when you consider kind of the tail type things that Jamie always talks about, the convexity of the balance sheet um, and various other factors, we, we do still feel that being patient here makes sense. Okay. And, and just one quickie on, on the recent both acquisitions and, and investments. And you or Jamie could feel free to take it. Uh, I'm, I'm curious on a big picture. Um, it just Is it just coincidence that there's been five things in a very short period of time, uh, and maybe if you want to expand on maybe nutmegs specifically and, and why the change in terms of uh, shying away from international expansion in the past and now um, making a little bit bigger move in. Uh, I appreciate it. Thanks. Sure, Glenn. So let me start with the international expansion uh, point on the consumer side because that's interesting. You've heard Jamie over the years talk about why it wouldn't really make sense to do international expansion in consumer when you think about that through the lens of a branch-based strategy. So if you imagine going outside of the U.S. and opening branches in other countries and competing with um, the incumbents just from a branding perspective, from an operating leverage perspective, we've never felt that that was likely to be a successful strategy for us, and that hasn't really changed. The difference right now is the ability to do that digitally. So what's really particularly exciting about the international expansion uh, narrative, both in the UK and now with our recent investment in C6 in Brazil, um, is the ability to kind of experiment a little bit. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's a strategically compelling opportunity. Brazil, as you probably know, is like the third biggest consumer banking market in the world. Um, but it's kind of fun to be the disruptor. You know, and so I think for us, given our position in consumer banking in the United States, um, being in a place where we are actually the outsider disrupting um, through these kind of digital channels, uh, we see it, among other things, in addition to being compelling financially, as a really good opportunity to learn and to challenge ourselves a little bit from the inside. So we're, we're quite excited about that stuff. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Glenn. Our next question is coming from the line of John McDonald from Autonomous Research. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. 
Hi, right, good morning, Jeremy. Wanted to uh, wanted to ask you about capital. You mentioned leverage is now the binding constraint, and you know Jen has previously talked about a 12% CET1 target. I guess um, could you talk about the multiple variables that you're balancing as you guys decide what capital levels to run at? You've got a rising GSIP score, an SLR cushion that's shrinking, but maybe the rules get revised, and obviously an SCB that came down a little bit, but maybe you're hoping for more. Um, how are you wrapping that all together into what kind of capital levels to target? Um, yeah, it's a good question, John. And yeah, there are a lot of variables. So let me start by saying that in terms of a 12% target, um, it's not off the table is what I'll say about that. Meaning 12% it's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily need to be higher. So for now it's not off the table. Um, but the element of time, i.e. when are we bound by what, matters quite a bit as you think about this. So um, just to go th through some of the pieces, uh, you've, you've noted the GSIB point. So we're in the 4% bucket now uh, as of the end of last year. That comes into play in 2023. We're currently operating in 4.5. As you know, that's quite a seasonal number. So it's still possible to get under 4.5 for the end of this year. Um, but, you know, you, we have to acknowledge an elevated probability, I would say, of landing in the four and a half bucket this year. But the four and a half bucket would be binding in 2024. And as you noted, in the meantime, we're bound by SLR. And we've been quite public about our views about these things, about the, the extent to which increasingly our capital requirements are driven by non-risk sensitive size-based measures, um, which were really designed, especially in the case of SLR, as backstops, um, which, you know, the Fed has acknowledged. So um, our priority, right, you know, and, and the Fed has talked about potentially addressing some of these things. We know we're waiting for an NPR on SLR, but also they've said that a potential GSIP fix could come as part of the holistic implementation of the Basel III endgame. So, there's a lot of things that are going to play out between now and some of those minimums becoming binding. And realistically, right now, we're going to be operating above 12% anyway in light of the leverage bound um, in, in all likelihood. So we're managing a variety of different factors, near-term, short-term, you know, prefs, common, et cetera. Um, and we're just going to try to be nimble about it as uh, more information comes out over the next few quarters. And uh, can you also make a further point? We have tons of capital, $200 billion of uh, CET1, $35 billion of preferred, $300 billion of long-term debt, only a trillion dollars of loans, which is the riskiest asset we have, and $1.5 trillion of cash and marketable securities. So the underlying thing is there's just tons of capital in the system. And I think one day people will look at it and say, why so much, particularly the liquid side. Yep. And then a, a quick follow-up, Jeremy, on, on expenses. You revised the fiscal year 21 outlook upward a few times now. Could you give a little more detail on the business volumes and revenues that are driving this? And, and also, we hear a lot about inflation across the economy. Are we seeing broader inflation play a role in your company's expenses and outlook? Yeah, so a um, couple things there. So, yeah. As you note, uh, we have revised up from 70 to 71, and the biggest single driver there is volume and revenue-related expense, um, where if you – Which is comp. Well, it's comp, but it's other stuff, too. It's, it's, it's the, comp, the comp, we're going to be competitive in comp no matter what it takes. 
So yeah. just keep that in the back of your mind. It is, it is a little bit of comp. It's also uh, transaction-related volumes. It's also marketing expense mm -hmm. in certain pockets. So it's, it's you know, the, all the stuff that fits in the category of volume and revenue-related. And I think the point is, obviously, we're all a little bit focused on, on the NII headwinds uh, right now. But from an NIR perspective, um, you know, across markets, AWM, IB, the CIB in general, um, and even pockets, you know, wealth management and CCB, we're actually outperforming um, the, the revenue expectations that were built in for our prior expense guidance. So that's kind of the dynamic there. In terms of inflation, I would say that we're not seeing inflation in our actuals, but obviously, you know, your guess is as good as mine in terms of, you know, the future, but it, it would be reasonable to assume that that's going to be a little bit of a, of a, of a challenge to a greater or lesser degree, um, you know, a, a, if the economy as a whole is in a slightly higher inflationary environment. And we did probably include a little bit of that expectation in the, in the, in the 71 for this year. Got it. Thanks. Our next question is coming from the line of Ken Osden from Jefferies. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, Jeremy, if I could just follow up on your uh, points about capital and just how we should be thinking about uh, the you gave us clarity on the dividend, and we know there's the $30 billion open authorization on the buyback. Uh, you know, again, just kind of, uh, you know, fitting for the middle there, how do you balance uh, just the magnitude of buyback you do from here versus the ongoing growth that we have in the balance sheet vis-a-vis -vis what you just talked about as far as the, the, the limitations? Thanks. Yeah, so, I mean, the answer to how we balance it is we, we talk about it a lot. We have a lot of smart people looking at it, trying to uh, balance all the different constraints that, that we're managing. And I think, you know, Jen talked before, especially when it comes to, you know, the, the balance between our risk-based minimums and the SLR constraint, which, as you know, we can address with PREFs, about kind of the mixture of PREFs in common. Um, so, you know, we're looking at that. I think RRP is helping a little bit. Um, on the deposit growth side, which helps a little bit with the management of SLR. But, you know, as I said previously, we're going to stay nimble there and use the tools at our disposal to try to strike the right balance between, um, you know, buybacks and PREF issuance, recognizing, um, you know, that, that over-issuing PREFs uh, potentially locks us in to, uh, you know, high-cost PREFs that uh, with low flexibility because of the five-year lockout. So there's a lot of balancing there, and we're just uh, staying nimble as uh, information potentially trickles out on, on the evolution of, of the rules. Okay, and then just so then as far as uh, how you guys will communicate, we'll just find out about the buyback on a quarterly basis as opposed to you giving a, a more broad outlook of your expectations around buybacks, uh, you know, as, as it happened more in the past. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right, especially in the new environment that we're operating in from a buyback perspective, now that it's not, you know, sort of an approved plan through CCAR, but it's rather just the overall $30 billion board authorization, given what I just talked about in terms of the need to stay nimble across um, multiple constraints, um, we wouldn't want to box ourselves in by, by, you know, speaking publicly ahead of time in terms of what we're going to do. So. Um, and, and you know, obviously, our normal capital hierarchy. At the end of the day, we're always going to invest first and look at interesting acquisitions and pay a sustainable dividend. And at the end of that, you know, we'll look at buybacks in, in the context of all the other factors. Yeah, we could probably give you a more definitive thing after they finish Basel III, which is now 10 years in the making, 
and, uh, and SLR and all the updates, and then you'll have more certainty about how this can operate going forward. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. I mean, Tim, sorry. Our next question is coming from the line of Jim Mitchell from Seaport Global Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Hey, good morning. Um, maybe just a follow-up on the card business. Um, you had 7% quarter-over-quarter growth in balances, but I think your guidance was still a little cautious. Is that just being conservative? You're still not sure about the relationship between spend and, and balance growth? Or how do we think about the good quarter and sort of that cautious outlook? Yeah, so I wouldn't use the word conservative. We've tried very hard in our outlook to give you central case numbers. So, you know, we're going to be wrong, but hopefully we'll be wrong symmetrically. So we really want to try hard to give you central case numbers that don't have, you know, uh, baseless optimism or unnecessary conservatism in them. What, so the, the point that you highlight, the, the sort of apparent disconnect, between the sequential increase in card loans and the relatively muted NII outlook is really just about pay rates. So we continue to see very elevated pay rates by historical standards really highly unusual as a result of some of the themes that we called out in terms of the strength of the consumer balance sheet. So as long as that's true and we're seeing sort of um, unusually low conversion of spend into revolving balances, that's gonna be a little bit of an NII headwind um, until the consumer starts to relever, which we do think will happen. Um, we just don't think it's likely to be a meaningful effect this year. No, that's fair. Um, and then on the charge-offs, that's always been a big benefit. I think if we look at delinquencies, both early stage and, and later stage, they kept falling throughout the quarter. Um, is there anything unusual this quarter where we saw a pretty big drop? Should we expect further declines in NCOs as the, as the year progresses given delinquency trends? Um, yeah, so I think on charge-offs, you know, I would just stick to the, to the updated card guidance that we gave, um, which is, you know, lower, just saying that it's going to be below two and a half. But again, it's the same themes, right? Like, you know, elevated cash buffers in consumers are resulting in, you know, exceptionally strong NCO performance and sort of upside surprises in terms of people paying. So. There's sort of two sides of the same coin right now, um, lower revolving balances, better NCOs, and then as we continue returning to normal, uh, presumably in 2022, we should see both of those come back slightly to historical trends. Right. Fair enough. Thanks. Our next question is coming from the line of Mike Mayo from Wells Fargo Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Uh, welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy, Jer welcome. Um, I, my question, I want to follow up. I think Glenn asked uh, Jamie uh, for the answer to this question, so I'm going to try again. Uh, these acquisitions that you've done, I, I count eight since December. And the question is, Jamie, you know, what is the, the, the strategy? Is the strategy, I guess, in some cases, it's to disrupt a new market, as Jeremy said. Maybe it's to avoid costs. Maybe it's to scale across tens of millions of customers. Or, and this is the real question, are you looking to connect some of these acquisitions like Nutmeg with, I can't even read all these, Craft Analytics, MaxX, C6 Bank, Open Invest, Buy5IP? Is the goal to somehow, you know, one plus one plus one to equal more than three as you introduce 
these acquisitions, these companies, these people to each other to create kind of like a 21st century digital banking storefront? Or is that too much of a reach? What's the grand plan here? A little, little bit too much of a reach, but there's a very smart analyst who said it was a finger pearls. And I put it in that category. <laughs> so asset management, Campbell is just a imagine lumber assets. Uh, timber assets is going to be a great thing for asset management. 55 IP adds tax, uh, tax efficient management to it there. Obviously, Nutmeg and what we're already doing in the UK will be linked together. You know, offering consumer digital products, both in deposit, small business, eventually lending and investment, global investing, et cetera, makes sense. C6 is another one. You know, Jeremy says a huge market. So, we're, you know, we're looking at anything which has adjacencies. It could be data. It could be management. A lot of these are going to fill in, and some are a little bit more of a skunk works. So, you know, we, how we look at the retail, digital, overseas, you know, we've got, we've got patience and time, and we're going to spend a lot of time to see if we can build something very different than we have in the United States. And so uh, it's a little bit of everything. CX Loyalty, uh, the travel company, again, if you look at that, we, we are already so large in the travel business. So think of this as enhanced services and uh, products and capabilities to offer our clients travel packages, et cetera, which we already expect to remember, I think we're the seventh largest travel company in the United States. And that doesn't include all the travel that goes across our credit card and debit card that's travel, but we aren't the travel, effectively the travel agents. And so uh, it's a little bit of all of that. I'm thrilled we're doing it. Uh, you know, we're looking all the time. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to end up with a lot of wasted assets. But, you know, some of these things may not work, but that'll be okay. Yeah. Mike, the only thing I would add is I, there's a couple of themes that to me come through some of the things that we've done recently. One of them is ESG. Um, you see that especially in the, in the AWM deals. And the other is just improving the customer experience, you know whether it's through various fintech, uh, fintech deals or, or CX loyalty, customer experience is a, is a key priority for us, and we want to you know, have all the tools necessary to deliver that. And, and equally important, we're putting a lot of money into building. We have, we have, like, every quarter for the next two years, you're going to have new products and new services being rolled out across the company. They're just, I think they're just exciting and very good, and, inter and more and more integrated, more and more simple to use, more and more... Uh, uh, customer friendly, et cetera. And so, um, so we're doing a little bit of all of that. And, and, and then, one that, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. No, and no, I just got my, my follow up as you talked about disrupting, I thought that was interesting, disrupting in the, the UK. Um, but since you wrote your CEO letter, Jamie, I mean, it's only gotten more competitive from the fintech and big tech and big retail and everybody else. And that's a question that comes up probably to everyone on this call. Um, are you going to be disintermediated over the next five years, uh, whether it's, you know, you, you, you know all the companies, but it just seems like they're ramping up that much more. You have an executive order um, from the White House. Maybe you have to share data. What's your, your current mark-to-market -mark of the threat uh, from outside of banking to your business? Yeah, I, I don't feel any different than when I wrote the chairman's letter. I think we have huge competition in banking and shadow banking, fintech and big tech, and now Walmart. And uh, and obviously, there's always a changing landscape, but we also have a huge, you know, we got brands and capability and products and services and market share and profitability. I think some of these competitors are going to do quite well. I think a lot of them will succeed over time. But, you know, that's, that's called good old American capitalism. I'm quite comfortable it will do fine. I, I, I do think there are going to be a lot of people struggling in the banking business. I'm, I'm talking over five or 10 or 15 years. 
I think one day they're going to call, when they talk about shadow banks, they're going to mean the banks who are shadow, will be shadows of themselves. Yeah, but in All the right, meantime, thanks, you know, we're, uh, we're working hard to make sure that, that we're offering services that are not disruptable because they're good. Yeah. So if our clients are happy and we're providing them a great experience, then there's nothing to disrupt. All right, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Jamie. Our next question is coming from the line of Ibrahim Punavala from Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Good morning, and thanks for taking my question. I guess just sticking with uh, the digital strategy, uh, we heard Jamie talk about multiple times around the lack of imagination that costs the banking industry in terms of either payments or buy now, pay later. Uh, and we, you talked about your international expansion. But again, uh, going back to Mike's point, as shareholders of banks in the US, should the expectation be that banks will be fast followers of what FinTech comes up with and replicating that? given the risk of cannibalizing your own sort of revenue set, or do we expect or do you think we should expect uh, more disruptive innovation coming from banks in the United States on consumer banking? I, I think it's both. I mean, it's not an either-or question. And, you know, and remember, a lot of these banks have done quite well, including, you know, Bank of America has done quite well in digital products and stuff like that. So when I talk about lack of imagination, I don't mean the whole company. I mean, when you look at some of these things, it was, we, we could have imagined more why they'd become a competitor down the road. So some of these competitors are quite good. I call it bobbing and weaving. They start with one little thing. They had products, they had services, they had eyeballs, they had customers, and they find ways to monetize it. So, you know, we, we, we got to be a little more forward-looking in how they're looking at, at their strategy and stuff like that. But in our case, it'll be a little, a little bit of everything. Yeah, and I would just say the whole, like, cannibalization and fast-following thing, you know, I think we've moved a little bit beyond that, like, there will be times where we have the first idea and we're eager to lean in and innovate that way. There will be times when someone else has the first idea and we're eagerly copying it. But, you know, the whole, oh, we don't want to do this thing that makes sense for the customer because we might be cannibalizing our own revenues, that's that's a recipe to, to, to become a shadow of your fullness of your form. We have, we have, we have no so. problem cannibalizing our revenues. Just keep that in mind. We will do the right thing when the time comes and sometimes we're a day late, a dollar short, but we'll do the right thing. And, and just when you look at the company, I mean, you look at, you know, we talk about SLR. I, mean, I, I always get, you know, we talk about CISO and SLR, but look at the flows across this company. Look at the debit card, the credit card, the trading flows, the market shares. The, that's what I look at much more than, you know, what are the ups and downs, the earnings this quarter because of CISO. I don't think that means anything for the future of the company. I mean, our bankers, our traders, our credit card, our debit card, our merchant services, our auto business, our digitization, it's, it's doing pretty good. I read, I look, read these reports, and my God, the company's doing quite fine. And, uh, and yeah, and we'd like to be a little critical of ourselves. I think when companies aren't, that's part of their failure. They should look at what they didn't do well and what other people have done well and, and, um, and, so, and be prepared. And, and they have a really fair assessment of the competition. It is very large, and it's going to be very tough. That does not mean that J.P. Morgan won't win. It just means their eyes are open. No, and I agree, and I think banks don't do talk enough about client acquisitions and market share, so I agree with you there. Just as a follow-up, Jamie, very quickly, uh, there's some questions around like peak inflation, peak growth. I know you guys are very bullish. Compare and contrast how the world looks to you today versus back in 2011 when we came out of the financial crisis and the risk of GDP growth disappointing over the next few years. 
I think I think they are completely different fundamentally. Coming out of the 09 crisis, okay, the world was massively overleveraged. You had investment banks at 40 times leverage, not J.P. Morgan, who did not need talk and didn't need help. The Lehman, Bear, Goldman, Morgan. You had banks overseas, Dexia, the Landers banks. I can't remember half of them. All went bankrupt. Uh, you had hedge funds deleveraging. You had quant funds deleveraging. You had a half a trillion to a trillion dollars in mortgage losses, losses that were going to be recognized. Actual losses spread around down sheets and derivatives and stuff like that. But the world is in massive deleveraging mode. The consumer is overleveraged. Companies are overleveraged. The, the bridge book on Wall Street was $400 billion. Today, it's, I think, 60. Now, look at today. Today, everything we talk about loans being down is the consumer is, the pump is primed. The consumer, their house value is up, their stock value is up, their incomes are up, their savings are up, their confidence are up. The pandemic is kind of in the rearview mirror. Hopefully, nothing gets worse with it. And, and they're, they're raring to go. And you see it in home prices. You see it in uh, uh, auto purchases. You see it. I mean, they'd be much higher, but for supply constraints right now. And so, and businesses equally are in good shape. They're not over-leveraged today. They do have you know, a lot of charts show that corporate debt is like higher than it was, but so is corporate, so is corporate cash. And if you look at middle market losses, it's almost zero, almost zero, and huge unutilized revolvers and stuff like that. So the second the economy starts to grow, which, and I mean, as it, you're going to see loans go up because inventory receivables and capital expenditures and stuff like that. So it is completely different. And you've got fiscal policy on autopilot, meaning there's a lot that hasn't been spent yet. There's a lot more that's going to be passed. And you have QE so far is a little bit on autopilot, $220 billion a month. And I just think you're going to see, a, hopefully see a very strong economy. We don't know how long. Obviously, if you listen to what I just said, that there's a little inflationary effect in that. And, and we don't know the future. I talk about Goldilocks. You know, Goldilocks to me is, is and I'm hopeful, I'm not predicting. But Goldilocks is that inflation goes up, the 10-year bond goes up, the growth is still quite strong. You may have growth in the second half of this year that's stronger than it's ever been in the United States of America. Okay? And Europe is probably six months behind America. And so growth can go into next year, and, and you know, the 10-year bond goes to 3%, a lot of growth, the short rate goes to 12 It won't make any difference. As long as you have that strong growth and consumers are there, jobs are plentiful, wages are going up. These are all good things. And so, um, you know, obviously, the inflation could be worse than people yeah. think. I think it will be a little bit worse than what the Fed thinks. I don't think it's all going to be temporary. But that's, that doesn't matter if we have very strong growth. Yeah, there are always risks in any environment, but the risks in this one, I think, are quite different from the ones that we had coming out of the global financial crisis. Yeah. But, thank you. Our next question is coming from the line of Stephen Schubach from Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Hey, good morning. Hey, Stephen. So I wanted to uh, start off with uh, just a follow-up question on Card NII. Um, Jeremy, you did strike an optimistic tone on the higher spend trends and the potential for you know, future NII tailwind as payment rates start to normalize. And just looking at the card revenue rate, given there are another of inputs in that metric, I was hoping you could just help us isolate the potential NII benefit versus the current baseline from a normalization in payment rates. So just the payment rate normalizing, what would be the incremental step up in the quarterly NII run rate? Uh, okay, so there's a lot of pieces in that question, Stephen. So first, let's talk about the revenue rate. So a couple of things. So in terms of the NII, 
we don't really see uh, a meaningful uptick in CARDA and II uh, happening this year. Like you might maybe see a tiny bit of it sequentially fourth quarter versus third quarter, but I think it's going to be pretty hard to see. So I think you want to be thinking about that as a 2022 effect. Um, I'm not going to get into guiding on revenue rate for 2022. Um, and I will actually point out that we're in the market right now, uh, you know, competing aggressively with some great offers. And I'm happy to say, actually, the client acquisition in CAR is going great, and we're seeing great uptake on the offers. Um, but that comes with a bit of elevated marketing expense. So uh, as I look out to next quarter, you might actually see a bit of a dip in the revenue rate just because of the way the accounting works there. Okay. For my, my follow-up, Jeremy, I just wanted to ask or at least hone in on one comment you made where you said you could potentially still manage to a 12% capital target. And I was just trying to better understand how much uh, capital cushion you are looking to manage to under the SCB, and if the GSIB surcharge is not recalibrated, where do you think you'll have to run on a steady-state basis? Just because it feels like waiting for Godot, we haven't seen any changes on the recalibration front, specifically with the GSIB surcharge. Yeah, okay, so basically that's a question about the management buffer um, and a question about, you know, what we would do in a world where GSIB doesn't get recalibrated. And, you know, a world where GSIB doesn't get recalibrated is a world where our capital minimums are quite a bit higher, you know, starting in 2023. Um, we obviously disagree with that. We don't think it makes any sense at all, uh, given that a big part of the driver of that increase in the amount of capital that we would have, and as Jamie pointed out earlier, both we and the system are really flush with capital, and the regulators have been pretty clear that there's, you know, enough capital in the system right now, and that growth would, you know, increase increase that amount quite a bit for us and for everyone else. So that's a big part of the reason why we've been so vocal for so long about the need to recalibrate that, and I think we see some of our competitors making those points, too, as they start to creep up into higher buckets. And, you know, to be fair, the Fed has acknowledged that this is a thing that needs to get fixed. It's just that they're kind of busy um, trying to get the Basel III endgame uh, put in place in the U.S. rules, uh, which, you know, brings particular complexities in light of the Collins floor. Can I just, can I just add to this? So, G, I, I've always, you know, I thought the G60 calculation was one of the stupidest I've ever seen in my whole life. And then we doubled it here. So, you know, the, the European banks have a lot of disadvantages in terms of, you know, they don't, they can't, they don't have common regulation, they can't expand across Europe. But one of the advantages, they have pretty much half the G50. And I just don't think that in the long run that's right for America to just be doubling and what I consider basing artificial number. And so um, let, let's just wait to see what all the new rules are, and then we'll answer that question. We don't have to sit there and guess what the, what's going to happen. Yeah, and I think, too, the important point is that in the near term, we're actually bound by leverage. So that's what we're focused on right now. That's our biggest single uh, thing that we'd like to see fixed because that is affecting um, the management of the balance sheet right now in ways that we think really don't make sense and eventually uh, result in higher costs that, that will get passed on into the real economy. Just to touch on your buffer point briefly, um, you know, when all is said and done and the framework is fully settled, hopefully we're back to being bound by risk-based constraints. We have a bit more experience with a couple of years of SCB, um, and there's a little bit less rule uncertainty. It would be – there's an interesting conversation to have about what the right management buffers are for people in a world where we do think it's important, and we've made these points, um, 
you know, to, to destigmatize the use of buffers. Uh, you know, we've made this point in the context, for example, of the, of the money market complex too. We, we have all these kind of guidelines and the rules have them as buffers that you're supposedly free to use, but that's not the way everyone treats them. So buffers become minimums and that adds a brittleness to the system that makes it um, more pro-cyclical than anyone wants it to be. So, uh, you know, down the road when things are stable, the buffer discussion could become interesting, but right now it's a somewhat simpler story and it's really about SLR. Remember there's one buffer you guys, we don't really talk about, which is $40 billion of pre-tax earnings a year. <laughs> Okay, that's a huge buffer. It's huge. It allows you to change your forward-looking capital. If you buy back stock, you don't buy back stock. And so we, we have a lot of levers, and whatever happens, we're going to figure out a way to do a great job for shareholders. Fair point. Thanks so much for taking my questions. Thanks, Steve. Our next question is coming from the line from Matt O'Connor from Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Good morning. I want to circle back on cost. Um, obviously, this year, some of it is driven by the stronger than expected fees. Some of it is the inflationary pressures you mentioned. Some is, I think, discretionary, as you've pointed out in the past, accelerating some investment spend. Um, but the question is, you know, as we exit this year, will we look back on costs from 2021 and say they're a little bloated uh, because of all those factors? Or is this going to be a good base year to grow off of going forward? Okay, so there's a couple of points in there. There's the, the, the word, let's talk about bloated. I mean, you know, you've heard Jamie talk about cost before, right? So we go after everything all the time. We go after waste. We try very hard to never be bloated and to not waste. That is a constant discipline. It's hard work. We look for it everywhere. Um, so I would like to say that bloated is not a word we would ever use to describe ourselves. And Having spent a bunch of time in the in the bowels of this organization, I, I really don't think that that's true. And I don't think anything about what we're doing in terms of how money is being spent this year uh, is is wasteful. Um, and in fact, you know, as you know, the, the really big driver of the kind of impact on run rate spend is the investments that we're making, especially investments in technology and customer experience, and in transforming the core efficiency of the company in terms of things like technology, modernization, and data centers, and so on. So in terms of projecting forward into 2022, um, you know, I don't want to get into giving 2022 expense guidance here. And I think that, you know, you really have to unpack that cost number between the parts of it that are volume and revenue related and the kind of more run rate structural and investment costs as we've talked about before. So um, I, I think this year is, is it's a little bit tricky to unpick the components uh, from your perspective to project into that. And if we can find more good money to spend, we're going to spend it. And, and I told you guys that there's good expense. You know, when we have credit cards and spend, you know, so much money in marketing, the, RR, the returns are very good, we're going to spend it. If we can open higher great bankers and stuff like that, we're going to spend it. If we can, you know, we're, we spent $200 billion in new data centers, which are, has a huge benefit for us down the road, we're going to spend it. We do not manage the company so we can tell analysts what the expense number is going to be. That is just a bad way to run a company. And conversely, a lot of revenues suck too. Revenues aren't always good, you know, and we all know how much risk we take in these businesses and stuff like that. So we, we spend a lot of time on good revenues and bad revenues and good expense and bad expense, and that's what's going to drive, you know, the, the franchise for the next five or ten years. 
Understood. And then separately, as we think about capital allocation, kind of longer term, is there a thought to more meaningfully increase the dividend payout? I mean, as we saw at the beginning of the COVID crisis, buybacks were suspended after stocks dropped sharply. Banks couldn't repurchase until they roughly doubled. Um, but dividends were maintained. And, you know, obviously your pre-tax earnings power that you alluded to is very strong. Um, it seems like that soft 30% cap, you know, is, is gone, obviously. Um, so just thoughts, it's not going to happen all in maybe one C-card cycle, but if we do get a multi-year economic recovery, is there thoughts of pushing the dividend higher, maybe closer to like a 50% payout? Probably not. I mean, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, first of all, you want the dividend, which is sustainable, through a bad downturn. And so we really want to do that, and I think this time kind of proves that, that it was a very minor thing relative to capital retention. But, you know, we want to invest in our future and invest in growing and stuff like that. And if we can't, and, and we don't want to do great the dividend so high that it cripples your ability to do other things. Yeah, and, so, and the way that flows into stress capital buffer yeah. sort of makes that point clear, yeah. right? So every, you know, part of the reason that we're at 3.2 instead of 3.1 is the 10 cent increase yeah. that the board announced its intention to do. So, um, and if I yeah. owned 100 percent of the company, there would be no dividend. <laughs> okay, thank you. The next question is coming from the line of Gerard Cassidy from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Thank you. Good morning, Jeremy. Can, can you can you guys share with us, um, if you take a look at your net interest margin in the quarter, obviously it came under pressure. And if we assume, and I know this is a big assumption, but if we assume that rates don't really change from here over the next 6 to 12 months, the long end stays anchored where it is, at what point does the average yield in your average interest earning assets start to stabilize or maybe go up because the new business that you're putting on equals or exceeds what's running off in terms of interest rates um, on the products that are coming off the balance sheet? Yeah, good question, Gerard. So, I mean, I guess one, one way to think about your question is whether we basically think that NIM has hit the bottom in this quarter. Um, and, you know, I think we've all learned the lesson that calling the bottom is a very dangerous thing. And I would also point out, and I would direct you to, like, the last page of our supplement. Um, I'm not going to give you a big speech on Market 10 II, which is my favorite topic, and why that is really a sort of a distraction that we shouldn't look at. Maybe we'll do that next quarter. Um, but we do have that disclosure where we split out, uh, you know, total NII and markets NII, as well as, um, you know, NIM and excluding markets. And, and the reason I raise that is that, um, yes, your overall mental model is, is not wrong. It's reasonable to think that NIM might stabilize around these levels, but it, it's noisy, um, and the market number's in there, and that's going to add noise. And also, I would say right now, there's an unusual uh, amount of numerator-denominator type effects. So, you know, whatever winds up being true about the numerator, you also have quite a bit of volatility in the denominator there, which is one of the reasons that we obviously don't manage to that number, as you've heard us say before. But your, your overall, um, you know, frame, it sounds reasonable to me. Very good. And then as a follow-up, and it, I may have misheard you, so um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said that... Um, the higher level of uh, non-interest expense 
the outlook that is was really dr driven by the improved outlook for non-interest income. Can you give us any color on that part of it, the outlook for uh, non-interest income improvement? Well, it's, it's, I mean, some of it's in actuals and some of it's in the outlook, but at a high level, the point is simply that if you look at the mix of revenue across this company, we have some offsetting dynamics right now. We've got NII headwinds from the consumer delevering, as we've discussed, but as you saw in this quarter's CIB and AWM results, we have exceptional performance in banking, even though and, and in wealth management, and even though market is just down year on year, it's actually up significantly from what we expect. Higher, Very good uh, expense guidance. So that's kind of how it all comes together. I appreciate it. Thank you. You, you want some of those expenses to go up because that means that good revenues are going up. Indeed. Our next question is coming from the line of Betsy Grasak from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Hi, thanks. Good morning. Hey, Betsy. Um, I had a couple questions. One was just on thinking through, you know, the outlook for NII, like you indicated, $52.5 billion subject to market conditions. Can you just give us a sense as to how you're thinking about market conditions um, you know, what's the trigger point for being you know, maybe better than expected versus coming down? And, and I ask in context of, you know, I noticed your securities book, you shifted a bunch from AFS to HTM. Uh, so it feels like, you know, from that, um, you know, you're, you're waiting more for rates to move up materially before you would lean into that, you know, yield curve trade. But maybe you can give us a sense as to what that market conditions uh, comment was referring to and how you're thinking about that. Sure. So let's go through that for a second. So I said I wasn't going to give my big markets and I ask speech until next quarter, but I can't, I can't resist. So um, you talk about market conditions, you know, the markets NII component of that NII outlook includes things like the extent to which we have spec pools versus TBAs, the extent to which we have futures versus cash in high-rate countries like Brazil, the growth in prime brokerage balances, the common theme across all of these is there are situations where you're deploying balance sheet in the market's business to serve clients, um, and, you know, that's profitable deployment on a spread basis, but there's quite a bit of gross-up between the kind of non-derivative piece of it and the derivative or derivative-like piece of it, uh, where the derivative piece of it doesn't have any NII and the non-derivative piece of it does. So every unit of that sort of activity that you do creates um, a significant uh, swing in the NII number, either up or down, with very little impact at the bottom line. Now, that's not the entirety of the market story. There are parts of the market's business where we're actually doing more HFI lending. The market, not the market. No, I know, but part of, but part of the market-dependent comment is the market dependent on the market's business. I'll go to the other point in a second, and I'm almost done with the speech. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, you get the point. So that's one that's one point of, of fluctuation. But going through your other piece, so sort of the AFS HTM, and I think your implied question, which is basically what would make us want to deploy more into a higher rate environment. So I will say that the AFS HTM. Uh, changes that you've seen are really just primarily about, um, you know, managing capital across the various 
constraints while preserving the right level of flexibility to do deployment. But given the level of cash balances right now, the, the AFS HTM isn't really a main constraint in terms of duration buys, and I think we have enough flexibility in there to do kind of short-end cash deployment tactically as we always do. Um, so to get to the punchline, it's kind of what we said before, which is we're bullish on the economy. We believe that that comes with higher inflation and therefore higher rates. And in light of that, uh, we're happy to be patient right now. When that actually changes and we decide to deploy more, you know, you'll, you'll see it as in future. Again, just a simple way to think about it, the 52 and a half, other than the market's business, which goes up or down, if rates go up, and you can see our earnings at risk disclosure, we will earn more NIL. All things you can eat, of course, they never are, but all things you And in addition to that, we can make decisions to deploy more money for more NII. You know, it's interesting versus when um, you were at our conference, Jamie, The it seems like, you know, the 52 and a half is um, more a function of the curve, given the fact that CARD did, it looks like better than you had thought at that time, you know, in the middle of June, based on your comments about, you know, spend being up so much. But the... Um, Betsy, you know, that, Betsy that, let me just, uh, let, sorry to interrupt you, but let me just pick up on that point for a second, because I think uh, someone else has a similar question. But I would just remind you that we do see that very healthy sequential growth in card loans on the back of spending. But the key issue is the revolve behavior. And so our view on that really hasn't changed. And we do see elevated pay rates as a result of the cash buffers, um, which remains kind of the consistent reason why we have a muted outlook for card on AI this year. Yes. Yeah, I, no, I totally I get personally, that. I, I, and I don't want to correct anyone here, but I personally think you'll see it go up by the end of the year. Okay, I think we'll be a little conservative in that because of all the spend and stuff like that. But look, we hate guessing. What I look at much more is how many cars you have, how much spend you have, how many happy customers you have, and I will take care of itself. And on that front, your card fees were quite good, right? You mentioned that in your press release. Maybe you can give us a sense as to the drivers. Is that, you know, new openings? Is that basically what it is? How sustainable is that? Because that was a, uh, a bit of an upside surprise in, in this result, the card fees. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just spend, right, Betsy? I mean, we can get you a bit more color than that. Um, you know, Reggie, Reggie can follow up if you want, but at a high level, I think the, the card spend number is really uh, all about, I mean, sorry, the card fee number is really all about the spend terms. Okay, and then just one last, if I can squeeze it in, your VAR came down significantly. Um, can you give us a sense as to what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, that's just the volatility of last year's prior quarter coming out of the time series, right, if you think about it. All right. Okay, thanks. Our next question is coming from the line of Charles Peabody from Portalist Partners. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. Yeah, <clears throat> I wanted to ask that NII question a little bit differently. Um, in reiterating your $52.5 billion guidance, you said there was potential for some variation or variability around that number. And I'm trying to understand where the greatest variation could come from. Is it in your loan growth expectations? Because I'm hearing that you really are not expecting much in the way of loan growth. Or is it in the shape of the yield curve because of the Fed's QE actions or words around taper? And, and talking about the yield curve, could you also talk a little bit about what's more important, the short end of the yield curve, you know, between Fed funds and the two-year or the long end? 
And in that conversation, I'll also talk about the significant amount of liquidity that's about to hit the short end. Thanks. There is a disclosure in the March 31st 10Q, which shows earning at risk, uh, if rates go up 100 basis points, U.S. dollar and non-U.S. dollar of $7 billion if the whole curve goes up 100 basis points. Now, the $7 billion, some number like 4.5 or 5 is short rates versus long rates. The long rate number is cumulative. I would add every year, every time you roll over, they think it's slightly higher rates. That is the number. Okay, they're all obviously loan growth. Can be loan growth. That's in the plus or minus. But the biggest thing is the is interest rates. But and, yeah, but the other variables. Let, let me give you the variables, Charles, because it's kind of a reasonable question. So I will spare you my market sentiment speech. You heard it already, but that's obviously a big factor. Um, within card, you know, we are somewhat optimistic about loan growth, but just remember that that loan growth has to translate into revolve. Um, to drive NII. And so if pay rates, you know, if pay rates remain, you know, as I said earlier, it's a central case forecast that reflects the recent experience. So we are forecasting elevated pay rates, but of course we could be wrong. They could be even more elevated than we are currently forecasting. So that would be downside. And the opposite of that, if you see the consumer relevering starting a little bit sooner would create upside there. Um, and then, you know, there's the impact of deployment. So we're staying patient right now. That means that we're not earning the steepness of the yield curve. And if that changes, that, that could create a little bit of upside. And then there's always the tactical actions that we can take, um, you know, in the front end of the curve. Right now, those aren't very interesting because IOER is above money market rates, which is a big part of the reason that you see RRP, uh, you know, having so much uptake. But if that were to change and there were opportunities in repo and so on, then, you know, that, that could, uh, help a little bit as part of our on you know our, our, our constant tactical deployment there but um that's not again our simple case just to follow up on that i mean the liquidity that's going to hit in july and august is, is substantial and that's going to have some impact on the shape of the yield curve at the short end um we saw a rise in the overnight repo rate reverse repo rate um in june is it possible that we have to have another one to keep rates from, from falling too far? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question for our kind of short-term fixed income market strategists and my old research team. But, you know, right now it seems like the Fed is pretty committed to, uh, to making sure that repo rates don't trade negative. That's part of the reason they made their technical correction. That's part of the reason RRP is paying what it pays. Um you know, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. But, but to me, the front end of the yield curve from a deployment opportunity perspective looks not very interesting right now, and that is kind of our central case for the rest of this year. And, and did the, the rise in the RRP rate have any – your comments about market-driven NII, did it have any impact on market-driven NII? Yeah, that's not really the way that works. About five basis points. Yeah, I mean, I think you may be, I mean, I don't know if this is part of your question or not, but there's, of course, the increase in IOER, and there's some pretty simple math you can do there about, you know, five basis points on, um, or 10 basis points on, on half a trillion dollars for half a year. So, but those are pretty small numbers in, in, in the scheme of the level of precision we're dealing with here. Okay, thank you. Thanks. A follow-up question is coming from the line from Gerard Cassidy from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open now. 
Thank you. Uh, Jeremy, I just wanted to follow up. Can you give us some color about the residential mortgage lending business? Uh, you know, how was the gain on sale margins this quarter? Any outlook on margins or any outlook on volumes, I should say. But also, did you say also that you guys sustained a small loss or a loss in the servicing area? If so, what drove that? Thank you. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about mortgage, which is a business I'm still I'm still learning. But uh, we've had very robust originations, 40 billion this quarter. Um, I think the most significant, one of the significant things that's going on is we've really finished unwinding all of our credit pullbacks from the crisis, so we're fully back in the corresponding channel, um, which is obviously helping with volumes. Um, there's obviously been a huge refi boom over the last year with lower rates. Um, that's starting to slow down a little bit. Um, the purchase market has been quite robust, although now we've seen so much home price appreciation that you know that maybe affordability starts to be a little bit of a headwind. Um, so as we sit here today, from a margin perspective, uh, you have your kind of typical dynamics. As rates go up a little bit, refi slows down a little bit, the industry has built capacity. Um, you have probably a little bit of a margin headwind looking forward, and obviously there's a mix effect. So as corresponding becomes a much bigger part of the of of the originations, um, you know, you have uh, mix-based uh, margin compression. So, um, and obviously, I think gain in sale was at all-time highs, and now it's it's not it's not even normal. It's just getting low at all-time highs. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's a headwind high. relative to a super elevated uh, prior quarter, but it's it's still um, perfectly healthy. Um, in terms of the servicing business, I think really, as you, as you, all, you all understand, in the current environment, uh, the, the prepayment rates, uh, prepayment speeds have been running significantly above our, our model forecast. And so uh, as we continually update those as part of our risk management, that can trigger some small risk management losses. But in general, the risk management uh, of the parts of the MSR that can be managed uh, has actually been very good and, and very stable. Um, so I think that that's everything you had, Gerard, right? Yes, thank you very much. Yep. No incoming questions in the queue. Yeah, can I just end? I just want to thank Jen Kupsack for the great job she did as CFO. We also know she's happy in Wisconsin, a new job. And uh, and Jeremy, I, I know why you know Jeremy, but he's been the CFO of the IB for seven or eight or eight years or so, so a complete professional. And uh, so, Jeremy, welcome to your, your first call, and congratulations. So. Thank you, Jeremy. Talk to, talk to you all soon. Thank you. Glad I survived it. Thank you. Everyone, that marks the end of your call. Thank you for joining, and have a great day.